Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, so you've turned to Acts chapter 21, and we just saw it played out there on the video version of Acts of the Apostles, which is great, a rather long section, but uh, good to see it dramatized like that. But I want to just drop back for a minute and ask you, have you heard of Operation Overlord? Operation Overlord. You have, you just don't remember it by that name. It was the historic invasion of Normandy that turned the tide of World War II. And uh, every once in a while I give this as an illustration, so you might even remember me talking about it because it's just so poignant as it relates to spiritual warfare and our task as believers and sometimes being disheartened and thinking, oh no, we're losing, when in reality God's winning and has been winning ever since Jesus whooped Satan on the cross, you know, and rose from the dead. So there was a television program that aired on the 50th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy. And that, of course, began the historic World War II battle to liberate continental Europe from Nazi control. And they showed two very different interviews back to back. The first interview was with a Marine who landed on Omaha Beach. And you've seen those pictures, those guys getting on the beach and having to go inch by inch to try to gain territory and people dying next to them and having to go crawl by dead bodies. So this man recalled horrors that sounded like scenes from uh, Saving Private Ryan. The aging veteran recalled looking around at the bloody casualties and he concluded, oh no, we're going to lose. But the next interview was with a U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance pilot who flew over the whole battle area. Now, from where he was up above, he viewed the carnage on the beach, so he saw the sacrifices uh, that were being made on the hills down there. But he also witnessed the successes of the Marines. They really were taking territories. They were climbing up toward the enemy. But he also saw the penetration of the paratroopers, how they were dropping in people behind enemy lines, and they were coming this way, and the effectiveness of the aerial bombardment. So the Marines were climbing up, the bombardments were taking out positions, the paratroopers were coming this way, in behind, and he said he saw that happening, and what did he say? We're going to win! And they did, and the Allied occupation, uh, or the Allied, um, uh, uh, the the breaking of uh, Germany's back had begun. But to win that day, some troops had to put themselves in that amazingly difficult position of landing and taking five beaches in northern France while the enemy fired at them from those fortified bunkers. And so if you had to pick one of those positions to be in that day, you'd probably rather be a paratrooper or better yet stay in the plane and do the bombs down and not one of those guys there on the beach crawling and seeing buddies die to the left and die to the right and those things. The 1st and 29th Infantry Divisions of the U.S. Army landed on Omaha Beach, and they suffered almost as many casualties there as the other four beaches combined. Company A had a particularly different, difficult part of the Omaha Beach to win, and they had heavy casualties, including 19 deaths of men from, do you know where they were, the ones that died? Bedford, Virginia, that's right, a city with only 3,200 people in it at the time, and that's why the D-Day Museum is located in Bedford, because we lost more men from Bedford than any, you know, uh, per capita than any other place on uh, in this country. So overall, 4,000 soldiers died that day, and about 2,500 of them uh, were Americans. Well, how could they do it? 
How could they face the uncertainties that awaited them as they tried to make that historic push uh, and succeeded in pushing the enemy back and beginning the liberation of Europe? Well, they did it by embracing the certainties that they did know. And so sometimes you've got to remember what you do know to help you do what you're, you know, is uncertain before you, but you know you're supposed to do. They were certain that if Hitler wasn't stopped, eventually the battle would come to American soil. They went there so Hitler and his guys wouldn't come here, and they tried to come here. The worldwide freedom would be lost. They were certain their cause was right and just, and they were going against evil forces energizing the Nazis' dastardly plans. So they were certain uh, that this was a just war. They were in a just cause. Hitler needed to be defeated. What Hitler was trying to do was evil. And... uh, you know, at the time, they didn't know the full extent to which the Holocaust was going on. We only discovered that more and more as we liberated the uh, Jewish camps and other things about how Hitler had uh, seen 10, 12 million people killed uh, for being uh, Jewish or helping Jews or for being uh, gypsies or this or that or the other, you know. Um, they were certain that if they didn't take up this noble cause, no one else was going to. England couldn't do it. Uh, France had already been overrun. Uh, If it was going to happen, America had to lead the way, and so they did. Well, today we're going to see the Apostle Paul courageously face uncertainties head on because of what he was certain about. And what he does is he models for us pushing spiritual darkness back with lives lived by faith in Jesus and kingdom courage. So you're filling the blank there is courage. And the, uh, the passage lays out pretty well. In chapter 21, verses 27 to 31, we see Paul and the mob. So there's another quick fill-in-the-blank for you, Paul and the mob. Um, We read there in verse 27, When the seven days were almost ended for the days of purification, according to that vow from verse 26, seeing him in the temple, Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And they cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian within the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Trophimus was a Gentile who was not circumcised. It would have been very bad for him to be in the Jewish area. So they accused Paul of doing that. He had not. But uh, it says, verse 30, All the city was disturbed. The people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, they tried to show in that video some bruising on Paul's face and that sort of thing. But you can just imagine people pulling at him and punching on him and how he probably looked even a lot worse than that. It says, As they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So Paul and the mob. Now, I want to recap for you the book of Acts briefly. Um, and uh, so Acts 1-8 is one of those verses, and I love it when a verse like this is in a book because it tells us how the book's going to outline and unfold. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, the country they were in, and Samaria, the country next to Judea, or the uh, province next to Judea, and to all the ends of the earth. And really, Acts lays out that way. In chapters 1 through 12, you get Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7, Judea and Samaria in uh, 8 through 12, 
It involves mostly Peter, the apostles, the deacons, and believers sharing as they went and, uh, back to their home places. And those events cover about 14 years. Uh, thankfully, Luke was such a great historian. He put several things in the book of Acts that help us know the pretty good chronology of it. So from AD 33 to 46, about 14 years covered in Acts 1 through 12. And then chapters 13 to 28 are Paul and his peers taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, the Antioch church's key role in getting the gospel onward. And it involves chapters 13 through 23 church planning trips, one to Galatia, one to Southern Europe, one to Asia Minor. And those trips took roughly 10 years from 47 to 56 AD. And chapters 21 through 28, where we're at now, there were three areas of trial, first in Jerusalem, then Caesarea, and then Rome. And these trials cover about five years from 56 to 61 AD, and around 62, or depending on how you're looking at it, 63, 64, somewhere in there, the book of Acts closed with Paul alive and waiting trial. We're told he got out of that, went to Spain and some other places with the gospel, was rearrested back and killed later on in the mid-60s in uh, Rome itself. But Paul had been warned several ways not to go to Jerusalem because of the uncertainty of what he would face there. And it's not bad to take such advice, but Paul felt a compulsion. He prayed about it, and he felt a compulsion to go into that uncertainty and into that harm. Paul was certain that if his fellow Jews didn't hear the gospel and receive Jesus as their Messiah— then they would die and go to hell. So he was certain of that, that these fellow Jews of his needed Jesus. I love how he says it in Romans 9, 10, and 11, right? He says, I wish I could be accursed. If they could go to heaven, I would go to hell for them. And of course, you can't do that for another person. You can decide for yourself and urge others to go to heaven. Paul was also certain that many of his fellow Jewish believers still needed to take a different posture toward Gentile believers, entering unreservedly into fellowship with them. So Paul also knew that there were Jewish people that said, you know, I've been saved, and the Gentiles, okay, they've been saved too, but does God really want us to get together as Jewish and Gentile uh, believers? So Paul was on a mission to have fellowship in Christ be all that it was meant to be, tearing down ancient boundaries. And let's see. Many people, in contrast to Paul, they're not going to take up any task that contains uncertainties because they're concerned about what will happen to themselves, right? <laughs> Looking out for number one, we talk about it and stuff. And hey, listen, uh, there's the very deep instinct inside humans to uh, preserve yourself, right? And so it is hard to do something courageously. And that's why it's called greater love, right? Greater love has no one than this that will lay down his life for his friends. We think about those that take up a military assignment, willing to die for their buddy, take a grenade that's meant for somebody else, or just being mind, mindful that that's helping everybody back home and that sort of thing. Um, but that concept also, of course, is about not just being willing to die, but also being willing to lay down your time, uh, being able to sometimes lay down some money and sacrifice, uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, uh, so that uh, you can um, advance the cause of Christ. Paul took up the uncertainty out of concern for the lost people he wanted to win to Jesus. Now, in last week's message, we saw that Paul went to the effort to show his respect for Jewish customs. So um, he was in Jerusalem, and James and the elders asked him, to uh, do a vow and pay for other Jewish Christian vows uh, to be Jewish Christians as they did a vow at the temple there. 
and so that he could go the extra mile trying to earn uh, the ability to share with them. But today we'll see that he still was a victim of mob violence in Jerusalem. So both things are good. It is, it is good that uh, Paul was willing to uh, be all things to all people in the sense that, you know, when he was with Jews, he was willing to be a little stricter about things. And, um, but it's also good that he was willing to uh, not compromise the faith when he was before them. And, of course, that led to mob violence against him. Verse 29 tells us that Paul had been seen around town with Trophimus, the Gentile Ephesian. And no doubt Paul had him share his conversion testimony during this time with many Jewish Christians, including the elders. But here we see that the mob mistakenly accuses Paul of bringing this same man into the Jews' only part of the temple. Now, there was a wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the next place where all Jews could go before there was a court of the Jewish women and then beyond that a court of the men, etc. And here's what that sign read. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. (laughs) So they were pretty clear at the temple that if you're a Gentile, if you're a foreigner, and you come into the Jewish-only part, uh, you are taking life into your own hands. This was so important to the Jews that they had secured from Rome the right in such cases to execute the offender without Roman intervention. So these high priests, and I, I love how the video showed that Paul probably knew some of these same very ones, you know, and he'd gotten papers to harass uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish Jews in other places that were thinking turning to Christ and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, they had the authority to go ahead and sentence somebody to death. So Paul is in a tight spot here as this is going on. Um, so they could have beaten Paul to death right there, but it appears they didn't want to kill him in the holy area, so they decided to drag him outside the gate. So their own respect for the temple area probably is what saved Paul's life there, God working sovereignly through that. Uh, that's when the authority intervenes. And that brings us to, we've had Paul in the mob, now we've got Paul in the man. <laughs> the man, as in the authoritative Romans there, the man. And that's verses 31 to 40. So in 23:26, we learn the commander's name was Claudius Lysias. So uh, it'd be nice if they put it here on the front end, but a couple chapters later, they tell us that his name was Claudius Lysias. At the end of chapter 22, we surmise that he had spent years as a military slave, eventually getting enough money to buy his freedom and Roman citizenship. Let me see if I can remember this. Uh, so slavery happened because you were a captive, um, or because your parents were slaves, so you were born into it. So Rome expanded so quickly, they captured lots of people. So those captured people became servants and slaves that were then sold. So you could be captured into it. You could be um, born into it. Your parents were slaves, so you're a slave, or also then sell yourself or, um, uh, be sold into slavery, those three ways. So this man uh, makes clear that he had spent years as a military slave, eventually getting enough money to buy his freedom and Roman citizenship. Now, the way he talks to Paul there makes it pretty clear that Roman law at this point was what has been suggested. If you were born free, then you could, if you were born a free Roman citizen, you could not be enslaved. But if you were a slave who had gotten his freedom, it's possible you could lose your freedom again. 
And so when Paul says he's a Roman citizen, that's why the guy's asking the questions. Now tell me about that Roman citizenship. Paul's got the best kind possible. Being born a, born a freed man, he can't be he can't be turned into uh, a slave. He he also has high rights that can't be lost. So through bad behavior, it could be lost, and that's one of the things the guy's evaluating as he talks to him. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So he, this guy was tasked with keeping the order, and all of a sudden Jerusalem's in a commotion. There were 2,000 Roman soldiers ready to be summoned down from the walls overlooking the temple to intervene if a riot emerged. That's the one thing they wanted to avoid was a riot because Rome was tired of hearing about riots in Jerusalem and some other places. And uh, unfortunately, that meant in AD 70, when Rome had had enough, they just crushed Jerusalem, crushed the temple. And that itself was the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament and also uh, from Jesus' own lips, that not one stone would be left upon another at the temple. Um, so 21:32, see what it says there? He says, he immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul was pretty close to death this time as well. He couldn't make sense of what the crowd was shouting, so he brought Paul into custody. And that's exactly what Agabus, remember that prophet, had prophesied back in chapter 20. You're going to get bound, and you know, and, and the prophecy was fulfilled. Um, verse 38 shows that Claudius assumed Paul was an Egyptian leader of 4,000 assassins that they were on the lookout for. So imagine his surprise when he's expecting to hear uh, an Egyptian talk, and instead Paul speaks to him in perfect Greek and tells him he's a citizen of the great university city of Tarsus. <laughs> no, I'm 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 not from that you know almost barbarian place over there. I am uh, from Chapel Hill. <laughs> Wait, that's we think they're barbarian. No, okay. Um, so the commander's impressed enough to let Paul speak to the people, not knowing that Paul will speak in either Hebrew or Aramaic, which the commander won't be able to understand. Now. So Paul's getting, he's switching back and forth here between Greek and either Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, you say, Danny, what is Aramaic? What's this I hear about Aramaic? Um, so you're familiar with the fact that Rome divided its, uh, its uh, lands up into provinces. And Judea was shared as a province with... Samaria and Galilee, those were a sub-province underneath the Syrian region, the Syrian region. Now, it doesn't say Syriac, it says Aramaic, but if you remember some of the times of Israel's kings dealing with kings of Syria, they're also were called Aram, 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 Aram was another name for Syria, right? So you're familiar with um, European Jews speaking Yiddish, right? Which was, a, so you're putting that Syriac language together with the Hebrew and you're getting something like Aramaic that in Europe, when they speak Yiddish, I think it's still descended from that. Not completely positive about that part. I am, I do know that Aramaic is Hebrew fused with, because it was one administrative region and it kind of became the, the pop way of speaking, um, even though Greek uh, was all throughout the world this time too. So 
you had the official ruler's language, which was Latin, coming into being. That's why the cross had Latin. You had things being written in Hebrew because that was the Jews' language, and you had things written in Greek because that was the cultural language for the entire empire. But when it came down to speaking, often this Aramaic, this Hebrew-Syria combination came out of their mouths. Now, here's what I have here for you. Folks, God can use every bit of your background as part of the impact he wants you to make. So... Paul had been well-trained in Tarsus. He knew Greek fluently. He had citizenship. So God's going to use his citizenship here. God's going to use his learning, his Greek here, and allow him to talk to this man. He's going to seamlessly be able to talk to the crowd in the language that they understand. And God opens doors. And, you know, I think that sometimes believers, as we get a little older, we ought to do a little audit and say, okay, what are all the things I've liked to do in the past and is there any part of this that God wants me to use for his glory? And, and someday he brings it back, you know, and you never know. Um, I made a snarky remark about Scrabble this past Sunday morning and stuff. My mom's a big Scrabble player, you know, very good at it. She cheats, though. I hope she does hear this because um, I know you, you know you do, Mom. Um, but, um, you know, uh, you never know. You might get a chance to do Scrabble with somebody and that be an end to the gospel with them. I know for me, that has often included soccer time and again. You know, just uh, play with some people, then pull up the ball, share the gospel, you know, while we rest, and then play some more. Uh, and I've done that in mission trips around the world and other contexts like that. Somebody that learns to play guitar, man, that's going to be used over and over again. Uh, and you just never know. For Paul, it meant being able to seamlessly interact with Jews and Gentiles. And now he's going to get his heart's desire. He's going to get to witness in Jerusalem now, what had he been part of in Jerusalem around this same temple complex and square? He had been responsible, partly responsible for Stephen's death. And it must have meant a lot to him to be able to share Christ where he had been responsible for a Christian's death, you know. Um, the place of Steve, the place he had been partly responsible for Stephen's death was now a pulpit for his testimony. Well, that brings us to Paul and the message. So the first 22 verses is a speech, another one of Paul's message. It's another place where he shares his testimony. And, you know, it, it flows pretty easily for us. Because in verses 1 through 6, he basically says, I was like you once. I was like you once. Uh, verse 2 says they became quiet when he spoke in Hebrew, their language there. And um, and you you note um, got a little note there Hebrew slash Aramaic um, in verse three he reminds them that he had studied under the great Jewish Rabbi Gamaliel there were two main schools of thought he had studied under Rabbi Gamaliel he reminds them he was zealous for God as they are today I was just like you guys once hey listen I'm, I'm you know. I've done deals with these chief, chief priests to harm Christians. You know, I was just like you. You remember me. In verse 4, he tells them he had persecuted the followers of Jesus' way all the way to death, just as they were willing to do today. But then something had happened to Paul as he was going to Damascus. So he tries to build common ground with them. And in this case, I mean, he's going, you know, he's, he's back home. He had studied under the great Gamaliel there. He had many times gone to the temple. He had many times offered a sacrifice. He had taken vows and stuff. And here he is. And he's getting an opportunity. Uh, you ever get to talk to younger versions of yourself? 
you know, uh, you go back and uh, you get to talk to, for me, younger soccer players at Bryan or get to do a chapel or something like that. But uh, you never know when that opportunity is going to come. Paul, uh, even though he'd just been beaten uh, pretty badly, he must have uh, been very grateful to get to share uh, with guys because he wanted them all to be saved, every one of them. Well, so the second part of the message is, then our Messiah saved me. So verses 7 through 16, you guys know this. It's another telling of Paul's testimony. But he builds that common ground, and then he says what Jesus had done in his heart and life. Uh, verse 7 lets us know that Paul had been blinded by the light, like the old song used to say. In verse 8, he recalls how Jesus the Nazarene, who had been killed in Jerusalem, was the one who appeared to him. He then recalls how he wound up at a well-respected Jew's house, Ananias. In verse 14, he recalls what Ananias had told him. So let's look at that. Chapter 22, verse 14. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Such a great passage there. Um, the God of our fathers has appointed you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the sound of his voice. Uh, now, again, the common ground. He doesn't say the God of your fathers. He says the God of our fathers. He's Jewish too and connects the righteous one, the Messiah, with being Jesus. And then he brings it home in verses 15 through 21. He wants to save you too and the Gentiles. So, man, I think it's a pretty cool message that God wants to save any, everybody. He's like, hey, God has shown up. The Messiah has come. And guess what? It means you guys can be forgiven and saved. And it also means the Gentiles can be forgiven and saved. And that's the part that's going to just irritate them. So he's testifying here, but he's also preaching. He's letting every Jew know that Jesus is alive and is their Messiah. And then he lets them know how they can have their sins washed away. Wash away your sins by calling on his name. If you're born again in this way, get baptized. And I bet you... There will be people in heaven who heard Paul that day and gave their life to Jesus. I sure hope there is. I hope they weren't all so hard-hearted that, uh, that this uh, speech didn't yield a soul or two. You just never know, do you? Who's listening? Who's watching? Who's going to respond? When they're going to sometimes respond later. I love the times, you know, somebody comes to me right at the end of the service or after the service and, you know, we pray to receive Christ. I love it. Also, when three months later, I said, now, when did you, you know, taking a new member's class or something, and I said, now, when did you trust Christ? He said, well, I did one day there with you at the end of the service. Some people say they did online or whatever, you know, and uh, just you need to turn to Christ to be saved. Um, now, notice how Paul slips in that this gospel isn't just for Jews. Look at verse 15. He says, for you will be his witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. So Ananias had said that to Paul and now Paul includes that in his testimony because they don't get that at first, but they let him get down to verse 21. And he says, Then God said to me, Depart, for I will send you far away from here to the Gentiles. And that causes the riot to start again. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's back on because the majority of Jews there that day had contempt for Gentiles with no desire to see them saved. Um Mm. Mm. And that just breaks your heart, doesn't it? You know, um, I mean, we're the beneficiaries of this being 2,000 years later. And when we think about faith, when we think about the lostness of people, we're like, man, 
I don't want anybody to go to hell. It's awesome if anybody's trusted Christ and been saved. You know, I don't, if, if I think of the person I like, like least on earth, if I think about somebody that my kind of people would call other kind of people enemies or whatever and stuff like that, man, we want them all to get saved. You know, we want them all to trust Christ and turn to him and be forgiven. All people, red and yellow, black and white, uh, Ukrainians, Russians, uh, both sides of conflicts like that. Um, in verse 24, we see that the commander wonders what Paul had said to the people. Why is this riot going again all of a sudden? They were listening with rapt attention. Now we're rioting again. And he would have beat it out of Paul until he realized Paul is not just a citizen of Tarsus, but a Roman citizen with right to a fair trial before beating. If you're a Roman citizen, one of your rights was... Um, you could claim that Roman citizenship, and they had to give you a trial before discipline was meted out. You're, you know, we have rights to fair trials here in America, too. Now, let me ask you about this, though. We've seen Paul before get whipped and beaten, and he had not exercised his Roman citizenship to have it, keep it from happening. Y'all remember in Philippi? The beating happens first, and... Um, only in retrospect does he then talk to the guys that come to him and say, you beat a Roman citizen, you know that? We beat a Roman citizen without a fair trial? Oh, no, you could go all the way up the chain and get us. We could all lose our jobs, maybe our heads for that and stuff like that. So it's just interesting to me that um, Paul uh, was so saturated with desire to please the Lord and to advance the gospel and to do what was best for the future witness of the gospel that sometimes he thought that meant going ahead and having the beating in the moment and then dealing with the legal parts of it. And other times here, he's already been beaten by a mob. He might have been about to die, but he claims that Roman citizenship. But he himself is doing this here uh, to make this Roman think, you know. But for our purposes today, we'll see how Paul had gained his heart's desire to witness again to people that would go to hell if they didn't repent. So how could Paul face, we ask the question again, how could he face such uncertainties and difficulties? He was able to do it because of what he was certain about, that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. His certainty that to die is gain. His certainty that there really is a hell and his zealous kinsmen were going to die and go to hell if they didn't repent and turn to Jesus. Next to those certainties, the possibility of dying at their hands in Jerusalem didn't trouble him so much. And that brings us... Um, you know, to today, every day you and I face so many unknowns, so many things we're uncertain about. We really just have to really build our lives around what we are certain about, right? Uh, because, um, you know, uh, we have an uncertain economy. <laughs> we have an uncertainty about whether our leaders will do something foolish and get us into another war. <laughs> uh, we have the uncertainty of whether uh, Russian nuclear warheads are secure and whether Putin could use those to create a big problem, you know, uh, around the world. We have uncertain whether it'll you have to take out a loan to get a carton of eggs or a thing of a dozen eggs uh, next week. That's back to the economic concerns. Um, we have uncertain for some family members that are prodigals. We want to have come back to Jesus, uh, whether others will ever come to Jesus. Um we, uh, you know, the rapture could be at any time and we don't want them to miss it. You know, there's lots of uncertainties and we just have to camp out on the certainties that we do know. And one of those is that regardless of whatever else we do in life, whatever else we do in church, 
God has his way of rewarding those who are passionate about his kingdom being extended on earth. So it's great to hear from missionaries like this past Sunday, you know. And I'm so, you know, we, we can always do more and we can always sacrifice more. And I want to uh, lead us to continue to be that kind of church, uh, you know. But I, I'm, I think every Christian, even as they think about their own missions giving and their own church mission giving, and I'm so thankful to have uh, David um, Thompson and the deacons partnering right now in um, looking after our midget mission budget and as monies are freed up to take on new missionaries, really thinking in terms of how to get our uh, most effort for the gospel. I'm so excited about what our state organization, the SBCB, does to advance the gospel and do church planning. And so glad for our North American Mission Board and its emphasis to get the gospel to the reach least cities in North America. So glad for the International Mission Board and all it does sending missionaries around the world. Um, and then also just to think through, okay, there are one billion or so, even more than that, lost uh, Chinese people, right? So one in seven people on earth are Chinese. Uh, do you have ways that you're praying for Chinese people to come to know Christ? And do we have mission dollars going there? And the answer is yes, which is good. One in seven are people from India, right? Even more than that. <laughs> 1.4, I think it's up to 1.3 or 4 billion people are Indians. And do we have people reaching uh, them? Yes. The answer is yes, both Southern Baptists and Treasure Paths. One in seven are some type of Muslim. And we got multiple ways to reach them, including what Joe Fleming's doing and our missionaries in Indonesia uh, and uh, Pakistan and other places. Um, some of our best efforts should go to those, even though there are uncertainties about those efforts. Um, so once you face the uncertainties you face about health, finances, and other people's decisions with what you're certain about as a believer, um, if you do, it helps be free of the fears that paralyze some of us sometimes and gets us with such anxiety. Uh, I like to continue to find ways to be around lost people so I can share the gospel with them. And um, I was meeting with a couple uh, today that uh, I'm not sure they are born again yet, uh, but I'm working you know, to get the gospel to them and making it understandable. But I was reminded in talking to this uh, young couple um, that uh, how anxious people are often that don't know the Lord. You know, she's especially just eat up with stress and anxiety um, because of things beyond her control, things that are uncertain as she looks at the future and the future of her family and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's helpful to get back around that at some point. And I'm not saying Christians are free of anxiety or worry. You know, we, we have to preach Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to ourselves: be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have to remind ourselves that. Um, but many of the people that we will reach out to are, all life is is uncertainties for them. What's going to happen when you die? Uh, do I have enough to cover the basic things and some of the other things like wars and like we've talked about already? And so one of the great ministries we can have is really um, being so settled ourselves in Jesus and our faith and those certainties that uh, it's like a magnet. I see this with this couple I'm reaching out to. They're, they understand I have a settledness they don't have and they want it. 
And that was part of my testimony as well. Paul shared his testimony in this passage. Part of my testimony is I looked at Doug Barr, and even though there was some uncertainty in his, in his life related to his mom's health, who he loved so much, he was just settled, you know, and he was acting on things he was reading in the Bible and his faith in God. And it just made him such a settled, peaceful person that I wanted in. I wanted in. And so Paul uh, modeled that for us and, um, and doing it even amidst life's other uncertainties, which is pretty cool. But let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.